Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. You're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. Hey there and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a conversation with Sarah Wood, the founder of the video ad tech startup Unruly. Sarah co-founded Unruly in 2010 and it was named the UK's second fastest growing tech company in 2012. Unruly's core mission is to deliver the most awesome social video campaigns on the planet. They are currently the leading programmatic platform for social video advertising, powered by their proprietary supply-side mobile distribution technology, which makes campaigns scalable in native ad formats. Prior to being named one of Inc. Magazine's top 15 women to watch in tech, Sarah was an academic and professor and currently still teaches as an associate lecturer at the University of Cambridge. Unruly was recently acquired by News Corp for $176 million. Let's listen into this great interview with Sarah Wood and Startup Grind's London chapter director, Marion Gazdick. Now, let's take a step back and start from the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? That's not a step. That is like a marathon. <laughs> uh, so in the very early days, uh, the northeast, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne, um, so n- north of England till I was about ten, uh, and then moved down to Brighton uh, with my family. And how did you discover you have something in you to be entrepreneurial? Well, I, d- I don't know that there is a moment of discovery, uh, and I think there are lots of myths around being a founder and being an entrepreneur. Uh, and there are stereotypes that prevail. Uh, and the stereotype is of the, uh, the founder who says, oh, yes, I was running businesses from the age of 10. I sold so much popcorn that I, I bought my first micro-scooter at the age of 11. <laughs> uh, and I would say that's not always the case. Uh, and lots of entrepreneurs um, come at it from different ways. Uh, I've always enjoyed doing stuff. Uh, so all the way as I was growing up, I would do little things. I guess I never thought about them as businesses, whether it was car washing, dog walking, dog sitting. I had my first job age 12, that was egg packing. Uh, he only gave me that job because I kept, the, I kept finding the farmer's dog, finding the farmer's dog. He was an adorable dog, uh, and taking him back, and the farmer was paying me for finding his dog. And then eventually said, you know, rather than finding my dog, why don't you come and work in my egg packing factory? <laughs> Uh, so I just, I've always loved trying different jobs uh, and have been an academic for a very long time as well. Uh, so it's been, uh, my parents would always laugh about the perpetual gap year. Every time there was a qualification, uh, then that was a chance to take a year and do something different, whether it was PR, events, setting up a tutoring agency, teaching maths and physics, oh, wow. uh, just trying different things. Yeah. And uh, the way, all the way to Unruly, how did it start? Uh, again, it's difficult to find a starting point uh, and name one moment. Um, and I'm always very jealous, very envious of founders who have these really strong foundational narratives. The innocent uh, narrative is fantastic, you know, where he says, um, well, we, I just said to people, try the drink, and if you think I should set up a business, put the empty bottle here. If you think I shouldn't, put it here. We have no such myth. There is, there is no such story. Um, but I would say it, it came out of... Uh, the three of us, some three founders, um, myself, Scott Button, um, and Matt Cook, uh, and Matt and Scott had worked together 
on a previous startup called Connextra. It was the first um, ad tech company to do real-time odds. So very, they, they'd come out of a really exciting advertising environment. Um, I was still working in academia at the time, in revolutionary literature, in visual cultures, really interested uh, in politics and how communications was changing over the kind of seismic periods of political change. Uh, and was feeling a bit fed up because I could see that being an academic was great, but it doesn't have much impact and it was slow. Uh, and you do all this amazing work in an ivory tower, but then nobody sees it. And at the same time, I was a mum, uh, and I had two children, uh, and it broke my heart every week uh, to have to go down to Sussex uh, and leave my kids in London and teach, and I had a full teaching workload. Uh, and I just thought, I can't keep doing this. Uh, and then 7-7 happened, which was the, uh, the, the bombing at King's Cross, uh, and I was um, really luckily and very thankfully not in it, um, but close enough to be evacuated um, and... Uh, just had one of those days where you count your lucky stars and you just think, wow, okay, so some people aren't going home today. Um, and it just makes you reevaluate and think, am I doing what I want to be doing? Is, is this, am I living life to the full? And at that moment, I realised that I wanted to be close to my kids. Um, so it's a very personal decision. Uh, I wanted to set up a business, be closer to home, uh, have control over my own time frame, travel when I wanted to, uh, and be there for the kids rather than being a, a train journey away. Yeah. You mentioned the 7-7. Seven, seven. Uh, I read an article that there was a lady, uh, a girl in her 20s, who was sitting in a carriage, uh, in the next carriage who exploded. And she was, she was a little bit injured. Then she went upstairs, took a bus, and the bus exploded. Uh, she's still alive. She made it. But, you know, uh, when you're thinking about having a bad day, she had a really bad day. Yeah, that's a bad day. Yeah, she's still uh, alive. And it's, it's interesting because um, crisis and change often co go hand in hand together. And it's often in those moments of crisis um, when change happens. Um, and that's something that I found from a business perspective. Uh, it's uh, one of our values that I'm really is embrace change. Uh, and change is quite difficult to affect in organisations. Uh, and sometimes it takes a crisis. Um, I, I believe that it needn't take a crisis. Uh, and if you build it into the values... Uh, and if you make change feel, um, feel safe and feel something that people have control over, yeah. um, then it needn't be so scary. Didn't take many conversations with your co-founders to start Unruly? Uh, no, it didn't take too many conversations. Um, so what the, most of the conversations were around what we were actually going to do. Uh, and this was, the, this was the big kind of hairy uh, challenge. We knew we wanted to do something. Uh, we knew we wanted to do something um, that was uh, related to the social web uh, because this was what was exciting. So 2005 when we were talking about it and we were thinking, you know, what, what should we be doing? So we want the autonomy. We don't want to have bosses. We want to be doing something that is tied to the internet, that is taking advantage of the social web. Uh, and we just tried things. Uh, luckily, we have a really strong shared approach, uh, which is an XP approach. So that stands for extreme programming. It's an extreme flavor of agile. Uh, and this is where you just build MVPs. It's lean, except there was no such thing as lean then. Uh, this is before the book on lean startup. Uh, and it's, it's also known as just, I guess, trial and error. <laughs> uh, so you just try things. And you try them quickly and you test quickly. So you, you, you always know what it is that you're testing. Uh, you try something, and if it doesn't work, you move on. Uh, so we started off, uh, we set up a website called eatmyhamster.com uh, and it was based on an old headline from The Sun, funnily enough. Uh, it's funny how these things kind of come back around. Uh, and we just, we realized that we love finding content on the web, but we really struggled to find funny content. Uh, and and I, I really enjoy 
watching funny videos, uh, jokes, funny pictures. I just think laughter is so important. Uh, and we, we set up this site because we thought it would compete with Ebam's world, which is a little bit scurrilous. Uh, and we, we set up about the same time as Reddit, but they did a lot better than us. Um, and we, lo we loved it, we really enjoyed it, but we struggled to build an audience quickly. Uh, and what we did find that it was that it was hard to find content. Uh, and we also saw that lots of people were enjoying video. Uh, so we thought, okay, let's try something else then. Uh, so we built Viral Video Chart. Um, Viral Video Chart was a site that ranked the most shared videos on the social web. Uh, so we, had, we already had two developers, our CTO, Matt, and we'd hired another developer. Didn't know what we were building, <laughs> but hired another developer because we knew that we wanted to be developing in pairs yes. and sharing the knowledge. Uh, and that was that, almost immediately overnight, that was successful. Um, what was the pain you wanted to solve to, to help people find? Define exactly. That was the pain that we were experiencing. We were trying to find good content quickly and we were really struggling. Uh, and I remember uploading a joke to the website, eatmyhamster.com, and someone commented on it and said, this joke is dinosaur old. And I just thought, oh no, this is really bad. You cannot afford to be dinosaur old on the social web. <laughs> uh, so at that point, we realized we can solve it with software. So that's why we, we built script, uh, uh, blog scanning software, so we were able to see which videos were shared. Then we had brands, agencies coming to us, uh, content creators saying, I love this chart. How do we get our videos into the chart? Uh, and we realized that there was a, a bigger problem, which was that brands were starting to create video content for web uh, and beginning to think about how they could get that content shared, watched, uh, and there was no way to do it at that stage. Uh, people were just sending around Excel sheets uh, with links uh, to YouTube links. Mm -hmm. So we were the first platform. We thought, I know, because uh, Viral Video Chart wasn't a particularly sustainable model either. Uh, it, was a, it was a good site, but we were struggling to scale that quickly enough in terms of revenue. So we thought, well, let's build a distribution platform. Uh, so we can aggregate lots of publishers who have cool sites uh, and invite them to run these campaigns for brands uh, and get videos watched that way. And how did the original vision change? So you, you still help people find the content or you just focus on the distribution? So now for us the focus uh, is twofold. It's on helping brands create better content, uh, ads that don't suck. Uh, and then on helping them to distribute them uh, in a social way. And, and we talk about social video advertising. Uh, and by this we mean social, not anti-social. So polite page loading, uh, where the content loads before the ads. Uh, formats that empower the user, so no forced pre-roll. Uh, and then content that is actually worth watching and adds the value. So we have to, over the years we've developed uh, software, developed tools to be able to do both of those things. Uh, often things that people said were impossible. So we built ShareRank uh, in 2012, uh, and this was the tool that predicts a viral video. And everyone said, ah, oh, that's just impossible, you can't launch that. And we're like, but we can do it, <laughs> why, why wouldn't we launch it? We're really confident. Uh, and we launched that, and now we can predict 90% uh, certainty in local markets um, how shared a video is going to be, what its share rate is going to be. Based on what? Um, based on 100 plus variables, but the key variables to think about with video content are emotional intensity uh, and then diversity of social motivations. Uh, so you want people to feel something really strongly. Uh, and this is, um, this is what, we, what we measure. Yeah, yeah. So how strongly, how, how, how funny is it? Uh, how uplifting is it? How incredible is this? How awesome is this? Um, is it a eureka moment if you're going after a cognitive trigger like enlightenment? Uh, and if you can get a really strong emotional, psychological connection, then you're halfway there. 
Um, but then you also want to give people reasons to share. So there are lots of videos that, get, um, that people feel very strongly about, but they don't necessarily share them. Uh, and we've seen this increasingly become the case uh, as our, social, our own kind of personal brands on social media become more important to us. We're much more careful about what we share, who we share it with. So um, some social motivations are things like kudos, uh, looking authoritative, kudos being first. Uh, and this is one of the social motivations that's really risen in prominence over the past two to three years. Uh, less, it's less about looking authoritative and more about breaking the news. Yeah. Um, social utility, social good, opinion seeking, uh, and we have data, uh, we have uh, two trillion views, uh, data based on uh, two trillion views. So we've got a real clear insights across different territories and across demographics on why people share. That's very interesting. When can you say uh, if this video will be shared or not? You need some basic data first, right? Absolutely. So we've got, um, so we do, um, we use the data set that we already have to do regression analysis. Mm -hmm. So we have panels um, who watch videos uh, and then when they score those videos, uh, we feed those results back into the data set so we can see whether they over-index or under-index uh, and can apply a share rank score and a predicted share rate. That's interesting. I've seen uh, the VP of products from Shazam talking mm -hmm. and uh, they can do the same. They can tell if a song will be a hit uh, five days before it actually becomes a hit. Interesting, yeah. So it's a probably a similar, yeah. similar technology. And there's been a big shift towards predictive technologies, which is absolutely key for brands and advertisers because speed <coughs> is everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the big shifts we've seen in the last 10 years is acceleration of the landscape. So about half of all shares occur within the first three or four days now once a video is launched. Uh, so what that means for brands is you can't afford to wait and see. You can't afford to have a soft launch and then, if it's good, pick up on it because the moment has passed. That's true. Uh, what I like about uh, you describing what Unruly is, you say you don't make the videos, you just make them famous. Mm. That's right, because people sometimes think that we make the videos uh, and we don't. <laughs> We don't have a creative bone in our bodies, <laughs> which is a little bit disappointing to people sometimes. Uh, we have a huge engineering team who are very talented, uh, very talented engineers. And actually, I shouldn't say we're not creative because computer programming is, is in itself creative and we're creative problem solvers uh, and we solve very big problems uh, for brands. We help them uh, overcome the fragmentation of audiences. We help them create better content. So we, do, we are creative in the way we solve problems, but we don't actually make videos. No. Are you ever intrigued to try? Um, we work with so many uh, creative agencies who do an amazing job, uh, and I don't think there's any shortage of content creators, um, but I do think there's a shortage of creative problem solvers, uh, and I do think there's a shortage of technical solutions. Uh, so cr content creation is only half the issue. You can have the most amazing content in the world, but if you don't have a smart distribution strategy, it's going nowhere. That's uh, and that's the, that's the other big problem that we solve. Once you've got that video, how do you make sure it reaches the right audience? Uh, yeah. Let, let's first get some ideas on uh, what is a viral video. You say it's a, it must be emotional. What are some other aspects which a good video which uh, you want people to share uh, should have? So I wouldn't ever ask the question, what is a viral video? Um, because I think um, viral is an output rather than uh, an adjective mm -hmm. there. So what helps a video to be shared and to be shareable, to, get, to go viral? Um, emotional intensity, social motivations, uh, and timeliness. And zeitgeist is one of the key social motivations. So being part of that, uh, wanting to be part of a conversation. This is why big sports events like the Olympics, like the World Cup, uh, often see the most shared ads and the most shared videos. The Super Bowl is another great example of that. And the most shared ad of all time uh, is Shakira. 
Shakira with Activia yogurt, uh, a, a music, a track vert called La La La, uh, which was put out in, in partnership with the World Food Program. So you can see how all of these different elements, you've got social good with the World Food Program, you've got Zeitgeist with this giant big World Cup, you've got um, all her fans who are very passionate about her and her and shared passion uh, as a big driver for sharing videos, especially in the US. Um, at, you're drawing this big World Cup event at a moment when rumours about her pregnancy are circulating and in the video she's drawing images on her stomach uh, of the Activia swoosh. So all these different elements come together, you know, the timing, the emotional connection, the music, uh, and that kind of delivered the perfect storm uh, of a viral hit. But then, as a brand, you might say, well, hang on a minute, well, that's great, having all those shares, having all those views, but what's the point? Uh, and for us, we would say, look, we're in a post-viral landscape. It's not about having the most shared video. It's about having a video that reaches its target audience, that drives word of mouth and drives business results. Uh, so it's not just about, it's not vanity metrics. Mm -hmm. It's about thinking, well, do people know who the brand is? Some of the most shared Super Bowl ads, uh, and, and uh, Bob Dillamon is a great example for a car brand that I can't even remember, um, were really shared, but then nobody can actually remember the name of the brand. Now, that is a wasted marketing budget. Yeah. Uh, I also heard you say uh, something about user-friendly video formats. Mm. What does it mean? Uh, this is so important. Um, this is ad formats that respect the user. Uh, so this isn't forced pre-roll. I think we're all fed up of uh, too many ads. Um, too many ads uh, being displayed and interrupting our content. Uh, and what we would argue, and really is, there is another way. Advertising doesn't have to be interruptive. It doesn't have to be invasive. Uh, if you create great ads uh, and then you allow the user to click to play them or close them, interact them, put the volume up themselves, and that's the kind of balance that we need to find. And of course, there does have to be a balance if you want an ad-funded internet. Um, there are other ways around it, which is subscription-funded content, and then people pay for the content directly via subscription. Uh, but if you don't want to pay by subscription and you are uh, in support of an ad-funded uh, internet, then I think the ad industry is responsible uh, for making sure that those ads aren't annoying, aren't interruptive, and strike a really good balance. Mm -hmm. You know, we have some startups, and we have called Startup Grind here. Uh, do you have any advice for uh, companies who are just taking off? Uh, what can they do with video uh, in order to help make it a bit more shareable? Uh, so, first of all, I would always say, Clarity of purpose is key. So before you approach anyone to make a video, or before you pick up your uh, before you pick up your mobile and start vining, just think what it is you want to achieve. What do you want the goals to be from that video? Uh, so we see a lot of people and big brands as well as small startups. Uh, often more big brands, actually, uh, who just think, right, we need big video. Uh, we need a video, and then let's think about what we're going to do with it. Um, but I would always say, you know, what do you want to achieve? Is it that you're trying to drive new customers? Is it you're trying to drive awareness? Is it about um, entering a new market? Uh, and what do you want your brand to stand for? So authenticity is absolutely key. Understanding what it is that you stand for uh, as a company. I have this, this thing called... Um, um, the purpose pyramid, uh, which, which we talk about a lot, which is know what the campaign goals are at the bottom of the pyramid for your campaign, and that might be awareness, action, advocacy, uh, whether you're measuring it in shares, retweets, uh, people downloading data, whatever that might be. Then you have your branding goals in the middle, your marketing goals. Make sure that your video fits in with everything else that you're doing. And then at the very top, you have your company goals. What is the purpose of the company? Because ideally, that should flow down into the whole piece. Then talk about something that's authentic and of interest to your audience. Uh, and think about where you have permission to play. Uh, one of the most common misfires we see is people creating videos where they have 
um, no permission to play. So brands trying to be funny when their consumers really don't want them to be funny, uh, and that just confuses them. Um, brands trying to be uplifting um, when that's not part of their brand. Uh, so just think, you know, what do you want your brand to stand for? And if you were at a party, how would your brand behave? Um, you don't want to be the brand that goes in and talks non-stop uh, for an hour. You wouldn't want to be that person, so you don't want to be that brand. Yeah. I could go on forever, but, this, but, <laughs> but uh, there, are like, there are seven points in our future video manifesto, and that's just the first one that I've covered off, but that's probably enough. <laughs> so all the videos about dancing ponies or ponies on, on, on doing the moonwalking and uh, babies roller skating, this is your idea, right? That is correct, although those are fine videos. <laughs> well worth watching. Um, there, there, is no, there, is, uh, there are some myths around videos. Uh, so one of the myths is that all you need is cats. Uh, <laughs> it's a myth. <laughs> I always hate dispelling this myth. You know, I love a cat video as much as the next person. Uh, I have my own cat videos um, that nobody watches or shares. <laughs> so I know that my tabby isn't going viral as I speak. Uh, we have... Um, Celebrities are another myth. Uh, some people think we just need a celebrity. Uh, if only we had the Hoff, Jennifer Aniston, whoever it might be, if we just had them, Bob Dylan, um, then we'd have a big hit on our hands. Um, that's not true either. There's no shortage of videos of celebrities on the internet. Um, you don't have to watch an ad to see videos of all those people. Um, but what is interesting is a celebrity doing something that surprises you and that is unexpected. Um, and that's the emotional connection, surprise. Uh, or watching, um, so you often see David Beckham being used in this way, and sports people being used in this way. Watching a celebrity doing something that is awesome and incredible. Yeah. Um, so incredible trick shots. There seen was this video with uh, a guy who was drunk at the bar, and Tom Hanks was drinking next door, uh, at the next table, and he saw that, so he took his phone and took some selfies. Uh, Tom Hanks with the guy who was drunk. And the guy next day, he saw the pictures, he couldn't believe that, and it went totally viral. And it's a cool thing for Tom Hanks to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. Very cool and um, in the moment and spontaneous. Yeah. But there's no video in that. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not just video. Uh, we just... We, Digital is just the new water cooler. Uh, so we're on social uh, talking about images, talking... Uh, talking about things that we've seen, but, but video does get used increasingly. And one of the big trends that we've seen over the years is a massive increase in the amount of video that's being yeah. used, um, that's being consumed, that's being shared, uh, that's being used by brands, uh, as well as just regular um, UGC content. And Anuli is going to be the expert for the next couple of years just on video, or what's, what's after video? Um, that's such a good question, um, and video is already taking so many shapes and forms. So we started off just very much focused on long form, and now we, uh, we support the Vine player, we support the Instagram player, we're doing lots more short form content, um, animated GIFs, there's all sorts um, of uh, permutations on moving image um, that are coming uh, into play at the moment. Uh, and technology is driving a lot of this. So new ad formats are driving yeah. new art forms. Mm -hmm. uh, examples being the, uh, the skippable pre-roll. Uh, so suddenly we have lots of advertisers coming to us and saying, okay, so in the first five seconds, we have to do something that's really spectacular. What do we need to do in the first five seconds to reduce skip rates and maintain attention? Uh, and we work with uh, lots of... Um, so what's the answer? 
Um, well, the answer is there's a, a really fascinating research study we're doing at the moment. Uh, we're doing it in collaboration with King's College London uh, and with Kent State University in the US uh, to answer precisely those questions. Um, and we do have initial findings, uh, but I, I watch this space <laughs> to be shared soon. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, there's some things around, okay, I'll, let me share a couple of things. That, that's really mean. Uh, so uh, I could never have been Charles Dickens. I hate a cliffhanger. <laughs> so things that make a difference are colour saturation. Uh, soundtrack makes a big difference. If you go in with a huge bang, it's too much. It puts people off. Yeah. Um, but kind of uh, gradually incrementing the soundtrack uh, can have a, a big difference. And there are several other elements as well. Yeah. But it's all still early findings. So <laughs> we'll wait for the, for the big findings. Yeah. Guys, uh, the hashtag is Startup Grind. Uh, feel free to tweet and, and use it. Uh, Sarah, now we know uh, why you wanted to build the company. We know uh, what you wanted to do with the MVP. How did you build the company from three founders to this stage? So in the early days, um, we built it by hustling. Uh, and we just did a lot of hustle. Uh, and we hustled for everything. Uh, and we tried our hand at everything. So uh, in the early days, you had our CEO who was doing all the invoicing yeah. uh, and working on product strategy with our CTO. Uh, you, had, you had me running campaigns and concepting reports, end of campaign reports, when I had never run an ad campaign in my life. Uh, and suddenly working with people who'd been in agencies for decades. Uh, but in a sense, that was really helpful because it meant we weren't constrained by what everyone else was doing. Uh, and we were able to talk to our clients, talk to customers, get candid feedback uh, and iterate and improve. Uh, we were very lucky because there was nobody else really doing this in the space at the moment. So our timing, um, pure luck. We tried lots of other things. Uh, and I've, even I've made it sound like this is a clear, straightforward narrative. At the same time that we're building out of our video chart, we were trying lots of other things as well, and the timing wasn't right for them. Uh -huh. uh, but the timing was right for this particular idea. So we did have a lot of inbound interest clients uh, contacting us. Uh -huh. And then when we'd worked with a couple of people, especially in agencies, if you work in a media agency and you do a great job, they recommend you to yeah. someone else. And um, so word of mouth is how we built the business. So the company was started in 2006, and this is a time where uh, YouTube was starting and loads of uh, blogging was happening and there was this TED talk uh, by a guy who invested uh, over half a billion in different companies and he was analyzing which companies uh, succeeded and why and he came up with this uh, one key differentiator which is timing as you say you need to just launch at the right time if you don't uh, you won't make it and uh, you had a perfect timing in retrospect haha <laughs> yes the timing was perfect you don't know that at the time of course yeah. Um, Did you feel like something is in the air around your company? <laughs> from the feedback from the first customers and when you were showing them the, the MVP? And well, we, so we knew there was a problem and we knew that we could solve it. Yeah. Um, so that's good, but that is only a part of the puzzle because there are lots of people who have good ideas for solving problems, but then the challenge is in the execution. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say for the first two to three years, 2007, 2008, even 2009, um, yes, we felt like we had, we had good tech, we were doing interesting things, we were solving a problem, um, but we were still coming to terms with how we might scale, how we yeah. might grow. Um, and you, there's never one moment when you think, ah, oh, yes, we've nailed it. Uh, on the contrary, we were watching YouTube growing very fast and going, how are YouTube managing it? Uh, so it just depends who your competitive set are and who you benchmark yourself against, how successful you feel. Yes. Compared to YouTube, you, you probably uh, had different problems. How did your first customers come on board? 
So our very first customers uh, found us through Viral Video Chart uh, and spoke to us. Actually, the very first money that we had in was from the BBC. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was... Uh, testimonial. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, and, they, and it was analytics rather than distribution. Because uh, with Viral Video Chart, uh, we launched a Viral Video Chart Pro uh, and we made our analytics more available uh, to mm -hmm. people who are prepared to pay for it. Uh, and the BBC commissioned uh, some research so we told them what their most popular uh, BBC ads were. Uh, so that was the very first money, and they found us um, through our video chart. And after that, did you just start growing because you knew you're going to have uh, a quick takeoff, or you wanted to wait and bootstrap the business? We bootstrapped, and um, we totally bootstrapped. So our CEO did sales, uh, I did delivery, um, and then Matt and the other developer um, carried on building out the product. Uh, so it was very straightforward kind of division of labor, and that's yeah. always been one of the secrets of our really success, I think. We just very clearly divide and conquer. Um, we are really happy to help each other where we can. Um, so you're saying your CEO was doing sales and uh, financing as well? Finance? Yeah. And you were doing delivery? Uh, delivery. So delivering the campaigns, yes. uh, campaign and reporting. The third guy was doing the, the He was building the software. Yeah, yeah. he's building the platform. <laughs> uh -huh. You, having your perspective as a female entrepreneur, I'm sure many of, of the people here in the audience would like to hear your experience. How did you, uh, did you, did you actually think about uh, it's harder for you because you're a female, uh, female entrepreneur or how did you, uh, how did you grow, grow into the company as, as a female entrepreneur? Okay, so I never thought it was harder because I was a female entrepreneur. I thought it was harder because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> That's why it was hard. <laughs> Uh, so, it was, so it was. So it was just very much about the learning curve, uh, and I think that was the same for all of us. Um, and maybe I had more to learn um, than than, the, than my, my two co-founders. Uh, so it was. It was always always felt challenging, um, and what, that's one of the things I love about. Uh, about scaling the company yeah. is the challenges are always different mm -hmm. and I'm often out of my comfort zone. I'm normally out of my comfort zone. Um, but I think that's where you learn uh, and that's where you grow. Uh, and if you're, if you're happy to get out of your comfort zone, then as you grow a team, you'll see that they're happy to go out of their comfort zone because yeah. no, nobody's afraid <laughs> to be learning. Uh, to be Let's take a quick break from the interview with Sarah Wood for some recent startup headlines. Pandora is set to launch a subscription service in an attempt to overcome decreasing ad revenue and rising royalty fees, according to AdAge. This comes as part of a plan by Pandora to offer a full range of music services, including radio and ticket bookings. This follows up on their $75 million acquisition of RDO assets and the recent purchase of Ticketfly. Independent contractor platform Angie's List has rejected a $512 million bid from the owner of Tinder, IAC. IAC had offered $8.75 per share, but Angie's List suggested that the acquisition would not be best for shareholders in its formal rejection. The offer represents the second attempt by IAC to purchase the company after an initial offer of $8.50 per share. Tesla is reportedly planning a German battery factory, according to the country's economic minister, Sigmar Gabriel. Sigmar claims talks with Elon Musk are ongoing and that the car maker may seek state funding. The company is currently building a battery gigafactory in Nevada with production set to begin next year. Let's get back to the interview. We had, uh, so our first hire, other than our other developer, um, was a salesperson, yeah. uh, John, and he stayed with us for years and years, and he was great, um, really strong. But that's quite hard, though, when you do bring on new hires, because suddenly you're having to delegate, uh, which is a whole different skill. 
Uh, but luckily, we've always hired people who are a lot better than we are. So it's, but certainly for me, every time I bring on a new hire, it's just brilliant because I bring on someone to help with ad operations um, and Holly, uh, Holly Clark, who is now marketing director for Airbnb in Europe. Uh, and she's a brilliant, brilliant um, woman, very talented. Uh, of course, she did a much better job than I was doing, uh, doing the end of campaign reports. So that was fantastic. And then we built out that team. Uh, and just as you build up the team, it's always great to look for people uh, who have skills that you don't. Yeah. Um, and that way, you can grow all the faster. Are you still overlooking the HR function? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I am. So I, I set uh, over insight, uh, design, marketing, operations, yeah. um, HR. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look back at the HR from the early stages and now, uh, how are you doing things differently? So you do need more process as you grow. Um, this is um, just all part of, of growing up, but it's, it's hard to find a balance. Uh, so in the early days, um, well, actually, one of my other very early hires, Scarlett, always used to tell this tale, which, which, which made me smile. She used to say, oh, yeah, I could, I could know. I, if I, if she used to say, if I applied for Unruly now, in 2012, I'd never have got a job <laughs> because there's just so much more process and so much more testing. Um, and she said, when I got a job, she said, I remember when Sarah gave me my job back in 2009. And, um, and we just sat and had a cup of coffee, and within five minutes, she'd hired me. And I said, hi, oh, Scarlett, yes, but she, you had been a freelancer for three months. Uh, so what we did was um, we had a lot of freelancers uh, and freelancers and interns and the great ones we took on permanently. So that was our best method of finding good people because then we found out who we could work with, uh, who was keen, who was passionate, who was willing to learn. Uh, and we haven't really changed that. We've just scaled that into a more formal internship. Okay. Uh, talking about uh, you know, the female entrepreneurship angle, uh, do you help somehow your female co-workers or you just uh, have it as a, as a company where it's, it's naturally falls into place? Uh, so we have, I mean, we're very lucky. Um, and thank you, Anonymous, to the, the top question. Yeah. Um, so what percentage of females are in your senior management? So it depends how you cut the senior management. So if you look at the, the board level, um, there are two females on the unruly's on, on the board. That's myself uh, and our CFO, uh, Lucy Gregain. Uh, and then there's Scott and Matt. So 50-50 uh, in terms of board. Uh, if you look at the exec board, um, then it's slightly more skewed towards the guys. Uh, we have Lucy, Dina, and myself. Uh, and then we have a lot of um, directors, a lot of females at director level. Uh, we have a pretty diverse team, mm -hmm. um, but I think that's because we have such a range of female leaders at the very top of the organization. Uh, and I always think this is the key, uh, that there aren't enough role models. Uh, and it's, it's really hard if you're just the only woman in a room, because everyone kind of looks to you as the woman. Yeah. Um, here, is, here is how woman thinks, <laughs> uh, which is, <laughs> uh, isn't very helpful. Uh, and also is, and also is really alienating for the 95% of women who don't think that way at all. <laughs> uh, so um, really, we have loads of amazing female leaders. Um, Dina Murphy, who's our chief people officer, um, has worked with lots of high-growth startups. Uh, she's worked with LastMinute.com. Yeah. She's worked with eBay. She's worked with LastFM. Uh, and she's fantastic at scaling companies and scaling teams, uh, and it's a real privilege to work with her. Lucy Gregain comes out of a media background. She's our CFO, 
Um, and she's very different again. We're all different. And I think that's what our, when, when we have young unruly starting out, they just see such a range of leaders and styles. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like there's just one style that you need uh, to succeed. Uh, I think it's, it's quite a good place to be able to find a route that works for you. And then as, in, our, in our nature, we're very nurturing. Um, so when we hire people, we look for PANDAS, P-A-N-D-A-S. Um, and that's an acronym, uh, and essentially it's people who are positive and passionate, uh, people who think that A, anything is possible, N, nurturing, no ego, D, determined, A, A players, S, social creatures. Uh, so we often, we often hire people who are very encouraging, very warm, uh, looking to help each other. Uh, and a lot of the women that we work with who do suffer from a lack of confidence, I think this is known quite widely, yeah. that there is a confidence gap when it comes to women succeeding. And don't necessarily have that problem at really because we're very supportive. And we pair a lot. And I think pairing is really helpful. So we have lots of female developers uh, also, and our developers are the most social developers you can ever imagine, uh -huh. uh, because their whole methodology is based on pair programming. So they sit together and code in pairs. And you'll often see, we're like, we're like Noah's Ark, really. <laughs> you'll often see people going out in pairs. Uh, but that's a great way for, for helping. And you, you, that helps build confidence. So you have, might have a more senior person and a more junior person going out together on a sales call, speaking together at conferences, mm -hmm. uh, and that way you can build confidence. And then having clear performance metrics is another way to make sure that everybody um, can, everyone succeeds on merit rather than just on the basis of what they say they've done. Yeah. Um, and I think that has also helped, um, especially with women who maybe aren't as forward um, and talking about their achievements. Uh, if at the end of the quarter you can look back through their strategic objectives and go, you've nailed it, you've nailed it, you've nailed it, um, then that gives them confidence uh, and also puts you in a really good position when it comes to doing pay reviews and promotion reviews. Yeah. What are some warning signs when you're hiring people uh, which you watch out for? Um, yes, and this is part of the reason that we have uh, quite a laborious hiring process, uh, as do lots of companies. Um, so we, ha we hire for culture, we hire for skills, we hire for collaboration, um, we hire for attitude more than anything. Uh, and we do, there are, there are warning signs, um, normally it's around um, cultural fit to be honest. Uh, yeah. And we have quite a few little uh, tricks up our sleeve for testing for that. Uh, during the you interview process, I, do you know what? I do share them. I do. They're really cool, uh, and, I, and, I, and the and the um, the big head in me wants to share them because I'm really excited by them. But I'm not. I'm not going to um, because <laughs> because well, I get into trouble when I do. Because Dina says to me, "Look, Sarah," she says, "You have to understand that these work because." Nobody knows about them. And if we start telling everyone what the, what the tricks are, they'll just game it. It's only going to be a video and a podcast. But the, the big thing, the, the, the video, exactly, exactly. Um, but the big thing that we test for is the values. And the values that we test for is deliver, wow, embrace change, share the love. So if you come into an unruly pro, uh, process ever, we will be actively looking out to see how you deliver, wow, share the love, yeah. embrace change. That is the clue. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you personally uh, mentor some people in your company or out of your company? Uh, informally, yes. Informally. Um, I, would, I would feel really uncomfortable about putting myself forward as a mentor. Um, a cautionary tale, perhaps. Um, I don't know, I just feel... Uh, cups of coffee, I'm really happy to meet yeah. people for cups of coffee and uh -huh. often people will call me for advice. 
um, on our, but I think advice is overrated, uh, and I think it's good, it's good to get advice, but follow your gut. Uh, so I don't, I don't kind of formally have these mentoring relationships yeah. over time, but there are many, many people uh, within the company and without the company um, that were we'll chatting. Off, uh, who was mentoring you? Did you have any mentor? Yeah, no, no. Were really, uh, consulting no. Really? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, no, we talk to each other. Uh, do you know what? Actually, maybe this is, this is a better answer than mentoring. Peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer yeah. um, learning, I think, is so much more powerful. Uh, and talking to other people as they're going through it or as they're just one step ahead of you. So for me, it was brilliant because I had these two fantastic co-founders. I had Scott and Matt, uh, and we would talk to each other. And then as we grew, we had clients that we could talk to. And we had publishers that we could talk to. So people within our ecosystem that we could learn from and that could help us build a stronger business. Um, and that was always the most useful yeah. feedback of all. That's very interesting. Now, when we talk about the growth of, of Unruly, uh, there are several stages. Uh, what big phases did you notice in the company? Uh, how did it change over time? So one of the phases that I often think about is just after we raised our Series A. Um, so, so you bootstrapping the business and then you raised mm, 25 million? Yes, that's right. So <laughs> we bootstrapped uh, right up until the end of 2011, uh, start of 2012. Uh, and we were uh, profitable from 2009. So uh, uh, pro profitable, and we weren't really paying ourselves much of a salary, um, but we were funding the business out of revenues from 2009. Uh, we, we grew into France, we grew into New York uh, as a bootstrap business, but then we realized we needed to move faster. Uh, we wanted to really own the US, um, move more aggressively there, and we wanted to move into Germany. We wanted to make use of the data that we had. There was lots that we wanted to do that we felt we couldn't do when we were bootstrapped. So we made the decision uh, in 2011. We were being approached by lots of VCs, uh, just always people coming to us saying, why haven't you got funding? You really should get funding. Um, and at that point in 2011, we thought actually it would be really helpful because we knew exactly what we wanted to do with the money. Uh, and I think that was the key for us. That's when we knew that yeah. we had to enter a new phase. We knew what we wanted to do with it. Uh, and when we'd, um, when we'd closed the round, and we were very lucky, we had uh, lots of interest and we were able to choose a syndicate. Uh, Amadeus, uh, Endiet, uh, formerly called Vandenend, uh, and BGF, uh, Business Growth Fund. Three very different um, VCs, all very supportive, different backgrounds. Uh, and that was a whole new phase for us. Uh, and in some ways, uh, it was really helpful. Mm -hmm. So it was helpful in terms of um, governance and discipline. Uh, and everyone was always a bit disappointed when they meet Unruly and they talk to us, because we're not as unruly as you might want us to be. Uh, we, we scale processes. We are constantly looking for ways to be more efficient. Um, our, when we were brought into boards, to our board, our board had always said to us, my God, this is incredible. You know, you always get the papers to us on time. They're always fully explained, always lots of information. Um, but we, we felt that was important. And the board gave us a real framework to do that. Uh, and when we, because we want to deliver wow, it's like, hey, here's a new set of people that we can deliver wow to. Uh, so being working with the board was really helpful from that perspective. Gave us lots more visibility into pipeline, uh, lots more scope into how we might grow. Uh, but then the negatives were, suddenly there were lots of people who wanted to work for us because they thought we were this really cool business yeah. um, that had a great office um, and had VC backing, which meant there was plenty of money to go around. Yeah. 
Uh, and so that was actually a hiring challenge for us mm -hmm. because, you know, I really loved the people that wanted to work for us when there was three of us in a leaky office with the umbrella over really the server because those people, they, they just, they were passionate and they loved what we did. Uh, and for me, the big challenge was maintaining that sense of mission and purpose um, and maintaining that scrappy startup feel even after we'd taken a Series A. Yes. And then uh, you, grow, you grew into other, other countries. Do you think or do you feel you have to have an office there in order to conquer the market? So for us in our business, yes, unfortunately. Um, it varies by business and if you're a um, consumer-facing business and you can do everything across the internet, congratulations, yeah. uh, you know, that's great, that's much more scalable, it will bring its challenges, um, but you can go global without needing offices uh, in different jurisdictions. Um, but for us, we're selling into media agencies, we're selling into brands, um, creative agencies, uh, and they are based in different, uh, different local markets. The media is often sold locally, uh, and the publishers, we're working with publishers who are often local, especially if we're working with lots of bloggers, uh, and niche high-quality premium publishers within yeah. individual markets. So yes, we did need people on the ground. Small teams often, but we did need people. Uh, and your HQ is not in London? Yes, it is, yeah. Uh, and our development team are here in London. Um, we're very much the center of XP developers. Yeah. So any developers who are into pair programming, extreme agile, mm -hmm. mobbing is the latest thing. It's very cool. It's very fun. Um, this is where you don't, you don't just have pairs, but you have bigger groups of people who mob over a single issue uh, or okay. piece of the code base. So when you create a new piece of code, you have a whole team uh, taking turns on the mouse and the keyboard uh, and sharing that knowledge and building out, uh, you know, building out the expertise. We've taken that and applied it across different teams in the business and different territories as well. So XP and using that as part of our DNA has been one of the ways that we've managed to scale our culture across okay. the different territories as we've opened. Mm -hmm. How do you use the local differences between, between markets and countries? Uh, are they big or they are not so big in digital space? So we, we try and use them to our advantage uh, and it doesn't always work. Um, and I wouldn't want to say that we've got it cracked uh, and that we're the perfect blueprint for how to do that. Um, but wherever we can, um, we, we take the learnings from one market and see how it can give us a competitive advantage in another market. Okay. That's interesting. So, uh, mm. Do you want me to give you some examples? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so one example, sorry, sorry abstract point there, <laughs> making not very helpful. Uh, so in the US, um, there's big focus on viewability, for example. Uh, and this hit very early, uh, our US business. Um, less so our UK business, not really at all in the German business, um, not really at all in the Asia Pacific business. Um, but we could see that this was a challenge in the US, so we started building out our product set to meet viewability standards. Um, we launched on X, which is the first uh, SSP to trade on viewable vid video metrics. Yeah. Uh, and that meant that we had a competitive advantage. We were first, we had first mover advantage in the UK, in Germany, and in our other markets. How is the competition to Tuanuri? Um, it's always been busy, always. Um, it was busy right from the start when we were competing uh, against small uh, kind of viral seeding shops uh, or creative agencies who are doing it themselves. Um, it's just as competitive now. We compete against YouTube, against AOL, against Facebook. Um, we've never been afraid uh, to compete. Uh, we know what's unique about Amruli. It's our data set, it's our expertise in video. Uh, and our challenge is to make sure that we carry on building out that data set and that yeah. product set. So your unique point is you have those uh, billions of data points 
which you can really build on yeah. and you just run away with your, with your expertise? So we use that and we use it in a couple of ways. So it gets used strategically uh, and lots of clients come to us because we um, can talk to them about what's working in their sector and we have a kind of sense of historical knowledge and we have the data that shows them which competitors are succeeding yeah. with which uh, consumers and why mm -hmm. uh, and then they can apply that to their own strategy and then on a micro level on a campaign basis when we test videos and we know the subset of users that are most likely to enjoy that video and respond to it then we use that for targeting purposes so we can take all the learnings around the content uh, and apply that to programmatic video distribution uh, so it's taking those learnings and scaling them across paid yeah. media. You mentioned scaling uh, do you scale only in size and geographies or also in the size of the companies? Who is the smallest company which can be your customer? Uh, so we work with uh, companies of all sizes, and we're known for working with larger companies, uh, yes. and we've worked with 90% of at age 100 brands, so mm -hmm. often the big brands. Uh, and that suits us well, because we're global, because we can kickstart global conversations. Um, we're known for multi-territory uh, campaigns um, that spread across many markets. Uh, but we also work with very small clients, um, clients, uh, lots in London, lots of tech startups, uh, lots of other startups that we know. We did a um, fantastic campaign for Digital Business Academy uh, yeah. with, um, Gerard, with Tech City and yeah. Gerard Grech. Um, that was you know, phenomenal success in terms of driving sign-ups and registrations uh, to that course. So we can, we can do small as well as large. It's very cool. And uh, when you're discussing scale, uh, you say you wanted to sell the company because uh, it's going to help you grow faster. How come? So in terms of our media footprint, um, our partnership with news means that we have lots more supply. So yeah. our reach already is 1.35 billion, so we have big reach. Um, but this will give us even more reach, and especially in Australia, um, where we're hoping to grow aggressively. Yeah. We'll give, uh, and that means that when advertisers come to us with their videos, there are even more places that we can place those videos, uh, and in premium environments as well, with highly engaged audiences. Uh, the other reason it will help us to grow faster is they're very keen to invest in our uh, tech roadmap and uh, to help us accelerate um, the build-out uh, of our technology set. So that, that's really attractive too. So you sold it to, to grow the company, not to go away? Oh, no, absolutely not to go away. No, we w no. Um, so I don't even see it as an exit. Uh, for me, it's a stepping stone. Uh, and it's a, a really uh, exciting way uh -huh. to take the company to another level. Uh, we want to see you know, how big we can grow, but whilst retaining our values and our mission. And our mission is to deliver the most awesome social video campaigns on the planet. And that remains our mission. And our vision is to so transform advertising for the better, which is even bigger. Um, and we think we can do this. Uh, we're in an even better position to do this with news. Love the mission. Do you uh, plan or do, do you invest in other companies, in other startups, uh, as an angel or uh, advise uh, upcoming companies? Uh, so we do talk to uh, lots of startup companies, uh, and especially in our office we have our Hive, uh, where we have uh, about 60, 70 desks. Yeah. Um, so it's a co-working space on the ground floor of our office where other startups are based. Um, we've had some fantastic startups in there. Uh, some of them are videos, some of them are events, some of them are marketing, and they, we work with them. So they just come in and, and use the space? Um, it's more than that, it's more of an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So when we have brands coming into the building, we have lots of big brands coming in uh, to visit our Future Video Lab. Uh, yeah. So we have a fantastic Future Video Lab with all the data, all the intel that brands need to create a successful video strategy. So often they'll come in, a media agency will come in with the brand, with their, maybe their social agency, their PR agency, they'll meet us, they'll talk through our product set, but it's brilliant to be to say, 
one, also, you should talk to these guys over here Sounds and these guys over here. Yeah. Uh, so we can be really helpful to the people uh, in, in our space in the hive. Would I, uh, actually, the first time I've heard about Unruly was not because of your social media videos, it was because of your uh, educational uh, activities. And Unruly teamed up with City University and you created this Unruly University. Yeah. I love the concept. <laughs> I was there uh, many times. Can you describe what it is and why did you decide to do it? Uh, so this is a pop-up university for the next generation of digital entrepreneurs. How uh, cool is that? <laughs> It's the first of its kind, uh, and it's um, it's, and it's free. It's free, yeah. It's it's free, uh -huh. and it's it's real people. It's academics and entrepreneurs coming together uh, in the Unruly Clubhouse on a Wednesday evening, uh, and it's co-curated as uh, myself uh, and then Caroline Vietz, who does all the work. Uh, and Caroline is an amazing um, professor doctor. I don't know her proper title, um, but she is um, she's in charge of entrepreneurship uh, at Cass Business School. She's very um, a well-regarded marketing academic. We first met each other because she was using our data. Uh, so she started coding up the Unruly data set and she was one of the first people to discover that the network effect was actually more significant than the, the quality of the content when it came to sharing video. Uh, so she was fantastic and we had that relationship. And a couple of years in, she said, oh, Sarah, we should do something a bit more. And I'm like, yeah, we absolutely should. Uh, and in fact, they had an away day. Uh, Paul Curran, her, uh, the vice chancellor, came to Unruly, um, and the, the whole senior team came to Unruly, had an away day, uh, and Paul Curran uh, said, he said, he said, Sarah, what can we do uh, to get involved in Tech City? We need to be part of it. It's really exciting, and here is Cass and City University sitting right next to it, and we want to be involved, and we want to play our part. Uh, and, and I said, well, do what you do best, educate. Uh, and he said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And, and City Emory University was born. And it's grown and grown and grown. So it. it's, yeah, it's, it serves a purpose. And it's really helpful for people who are just starting out and want to get a sense of how to be a practitioner, but also want the theory. So it's a great way to get back to the community and you also help connect people and educate them. It's awesome. Uh, before we finish, let's just take some questions from uh, Anonymous. And then we can take some questions. I love this anonymous person. Exactly. Yeah. He's very smart. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you can give to female business owners who are just starting out? Well, it's probably the same piece of advice that I would give to any business owners that are, that are, are starting out, yeah. uh, which is love what you do um, because you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. Um, and that's regardless of your gender. Um, if you are, if you, and for those of you who are running your own business, you know this already. Um, if you've still got friends, congratulations. <laughs> uh, it's, re it's, it's really hard to do everything, uh, and you do need to make difficult choices. Uh, and at various points along the way, um, you know, I've made difficult choices. We all have. Uh, so you really need to love what you do because you are going to have to make those sacrifices. Choose your co-founders with care. Um, because uh, the team that you build around you is the most important thing um, and the co-founders are the very beginnings of that team. And you can test that relationship really easily. So if you see that you're arguing over company name, if you see you're arguing over um, how, many, how the shares are divvied up, what kind of company you are, uh, then I think the chances are it's not going to go well. Uh, and it's a little bit, it's like starting a family when you start a business. And it yes. will grow and it will evolve and there will be healthy discussions along the way. Um, but make sure that you are really closely aligned with your co-founders. Now, the next one is, with the recent appointment as one of the mayor's tech ambassadors for London, how do you think London's tech scene is going to evolve? It's 
constantly evolving. Um, and what we're seeing at the moment is the shift from um, startup economy to scale-up economy. This is really exciting. Um, and it's exciting for lots of reasons. But I think for a long time now, London has had a real burgeoning startup scene. Uh, and there are lots of opportunities for people who are just starting out to learn, to connect. Um, some people say oh, it's, a, it's a bit cliquey it's, uh, as an ecosystem, but there are many different cliques. There are many different groups that you can join to find out uh, how to run a business, how, how to market your company, how to do a business plan. Lots of opportunities there. Uh, and there are more funding opportunities than ever before for early stage companies. Um, but what we've really been missing is the scale-up piece. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's lots more focus now with new funds coming in uh, to fill that gap in terms of funding. Uh, and the government turning their attention to this. Uh, and also Tech City turning their attention to this. And Sherry Coutu has been um, a big leader uh, around the scale-up economy. Yeah. Uh, the Scale-Up Institute that she launched last year with Reid Hoffman here, uh, talking about how we can it's help. June, right? Yeah, exactly. Was it just in June? Yeah. Oh my goodness, time goes really fast. It's the founder of LinkedIn because yeah. they were great fans. She brought him here and they yeah. launched it. Yeah, it was brilliant. No, it was, a, it was, it was awesome. No, I was at the dinner. I just can't believe it was June. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like longer ago than that. Um, wow. Uh, and, and that was an amazing uh, event and a real milestone moment, I think, for London's tech economy. Because yeah. uh, it kind of feels like we're growing up. Uh, and there's going to be lots more unicorns, although being a unicorn isn't the be-all and end-all. Um, but there are going to be more companies growing faster, growing further. Now, that's important for our economy, uh, because these fast-growing scale-ups uh, are where new jobs are delivered. Uh, and ultimately, where wealth is given back. And that is one of the most exciting things, I think, about the Unruly acquisition, is a quarter of our company was owned by just regular Unruly's, past and present. So not including the founders, not including the VCs, our old staff, our staff present and our staff past. Um, and that was wonderful to be able to uh, have that moment when you could really reward financially uh, everybody who's been working for us and has put in their time and their sweat and their energy. So your colleagues are very happy. I hope so. But this is what this is what we need. Uh, in in, this is what we need as an ecosystem is more more exits like this, mm -hmm. uh, because then you have an unruly mafia going off and starting companies, uh, and we're just a little bit behind, about 30 years behind. So looking early on this one, yeah. you know, we need a couple more generations of big companies exiting uh, and pouring money back into the ecosystem. We're talking about exit. Did you ever consider to go IPO? Um, we were really lucky um, that we were in a position to consider lots of different options. Yeah. Um, so IPOing was an option, acquisition was an option, continuing to grow organically was an option. We were just really happy growing yeah. organically. Yeah. Uh, we love what we do. The senior leadership team, I mean, the whole team is just amazing. Um, but I would call out a really senior exec. Uh, we really enjoy working together um, as a team. Um, we're very aligned. Uh, it's just a pleasure to come into work with such smart people. So we weren't in a hurry to do anything. Um, but when news approached us, we could just see that there was a massive opportunity.